In other words, Jesus is saying when you obey what you do know, God will show you that which you do not know because obedience is the conduit to the specific tailored will of God as it relates to your life. Now, the will of God never contradicts the word of God. And so you begin by obeying the general will of God. And when you obey the general will of God, God unfolds the specific will of God. It's like walking in a cave with a headlamp. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is continuing his study in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, where he is addressing the problem of perspective, specifically the difference between knowing and doing the will of God. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his sermon on Vapor Theology. God wants you and I to make the most of our time because we live in an evil and fallen world. Jesus underscored the need to plan and that great parable of what it means to be a disciple. In Luke 14, he made this statement. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this This man began to build and was not able to finish. So neither James nor Jesus nor Solomon were against planning. They were against planning without God. They were not against anticipating the future, but they were against anticipating the future in a secular way like a practical atheist doing it without the living God. And we as Christians can live and plan and act. Remember who the audience is here. He's talking to saved, born-again people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life who are headed for heaven. And sometimes we just ask God to, to bless our plans ever before we ask God to reveal His plan. And it's not our life to plan. We affirm that we've been bought with a price that we're not our own and we are to glorify God in our body However, this man, he he also made a wrong assumption. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Two truths you can absolutely count on concerning the future. One is that only God knows the future. The other is that we don't. Tomorrow's circumstances are uncertain. I mean, before the day is over, you could get a phone call, and everything changes. All of a sudden, there is the death of a spouse, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job. All kinds of things that you didn't count on come down the pike. And God wants us to be careful. I mean, think about the people this morning as I'm preaching who are in the emergency room. They didn't wake up this morning and say, I think we'll go to the emergency room so we can sit there for six hours and be ignored. No, not at all. Just something happened. A crisis suddenly came. And they had no choice. And that's the truth that James wants us to get a hold of here. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. In fact, he says you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Your life, when compared to eternity, is like steam coming out of a kettle, appears for a moment and then is gone. The Phillips translation, a paraphrase, one of the first ones ever done in the 1950s in England, J.B. Phillips rendered this verse, what after all is your life? 
that's like a puff of smoke visible for a little while and then dissolving into thin air. You and I sit here this morning, we hear this verse, and all of us are one heartbeat away from eternity. You're healthy, you're young, you're vibrant, but you have no promise of tomorrow. Sometimes the old man, the old woman, all of a sudden gives out and they die, but sometimes it's a little child who lays down his or her toys and suddenly is gone. I mean, how many of you are planning to die in this calendar year? Probably none of us. I'm not dying this year. How about next? Certainly not next year. How about the next year? I don't think so. But if this is a typical year, I'll do a dozen funerals for people who weren't planning to die. One of those days, it will be your funeral. One of those days, it will be mine. But some of us, we have it all figured out. We think, I know how I'm going to die. You know, I'll live till I'm 95. I'll go to the doctor one day and he'll say, you know, I think this is it for you. So you'll go home and you'll make sure the insurance papers are in order and the will says what you want it to say. And and you'll call in your children and grandchildren and give them a final goodbye and kiss and pull up the covers over your head and die. (laughs) But that's not how it works. Death, for the most part, is unexpected. It comes in a moment. I bring this watch into the pulpit every week because I don't want to bring in my cell phone. But I can hear it ticking. And with every tick, on average, two people die. 120 a minute, 7,200 an hour, 173,000 a day, 6.3, million a year. And one of those ticks is yours or mine. And James is simply saying, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. This life is short. And I should say by way of parenthesis while we're at it, this would be a good reminder to say to some of us listening, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. I was witnessing to a man, and I said, look, you may not be alive next week. Oh, he didn't think that. See, we don't have the promise that we'll be alive tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know, the Scripture says, what a day may bring. In Psalm 102, 11, it describes our life like withering grass. And then King David uses the exact identical metaphor that James is using in Psalm 39 and verse 5. He says, your life is like a mere breath. The chronicler, when he describes King David, who lived to the age of 70, he describes him as saying, our days are like a shadow. Job says, your your days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle. They're very quick. Listen to what Moses said in Psalm 90. You turn, he's speaking to the Lord. He says, you turn back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. That's just the shortness of life. Isaiah uses the imagery of a flower that sprouts. That flesh, fresh flower someone gave you yesterday. And by this afternoon it will be wilted. 
how arrogant it is to say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James is reminding us that that's not an assumption you can make. Why? Because you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. He reminds us that your life is like a vapor. The word for vapor is the word that's translated else in the New Testament for breath. It's used to describe steam in Koine Greek. If you take a pot and you boil it, it's used to describe steam. The CBS translation renders it smoke. Um, the LEB puts it smoky vapor. The Net Bible, some of you use, it renders it a puff of smoke. The English Standard Version puts it as a mist. And another translation says like a morning fog. By the way, this is a verse annihilationists use to say that the wicked do not continue after they die. Annihilationism is a doctrine that says that when a wicked person, when an unbeliever dies, he doesn't exist in hell for all of eternity, but he is like the vapor that appears and then he's annihilated. He's burned up. He is consumed. And that doctrine became popular, A, through Seventh-day Adventists, and B, through Jehovah's Witness, because they both came out of the same group. But it's heretical. The same word that is used to describe eternal life, ionion, is the same Greek word that's used to describe eternal death, and it's the same word that's used to describe the eternal God. To say that God is not eternal would be to say that heaven is not eternal would be to say that hell is not eternal. But no. In fact, the first word here, if you look at the word appears and then the word vanishes, it's the identical word in Greek with the change of a single letter, the alpha. You know, there's the word millennium. We speak of the millennial reign of Christ that he'll rule for a thousand years. And then we have a group of people today who are amillennialists. They say the church has replaced Israel, that God's done with the Jewish people replacement theology. It's bad theology, but it's become very popular in America. And I'm not surprised as we move here into the end of the age, because the scripture teaches that there is going to be a downgrade towards the way people view the Jew. All the nations of the world, even America someday, will go against Israel. The scripture is plain on that. So there's the word millennium, and then you put the alpha from it, a millennium, meaning there is no millennium. Well, there's a word here for appears, and there's the word for vanishes, and the difference is the letter alpha, the alpha prefix. And James is just saying we appear for a moment, and then we disappear. We're visible, and then we're invisible, but it doesn't mean we cease to exist. Just like vapor that changes form, it doesn't cease to exist. It goes on, but it looks differently. You no longer see it. And his point is, is that you need to plan in light of the shortness of life, the brevity of life, and how unpredictable life can be. Even as I preach, I need to be preaching as a dying man to dying men. This may be the last sermon I will ever preach. And this may be the last sermon you will ever hear. 
I remember preaching in my father-in-law's church, and he asked me to come and do a revival. And I preached that Sunday morning, and a gentleman came up to me after. His name was Alton. He said, Pastor Carl, that was just great. That just spoke to my heart. I can't wait till tonight. I'll see you tonight. He went home that afternoon, fell ill, didn't come home, and by Wednesday he was dead. Look, life is short. It is but a vapor that appears for a moment. We think that we are in the land of the living, headed to the land of the dying. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible teaches that we are in the land of the dying, and we are headed towards the land of the living, where life will never, ever, ever, ever end, either in heaven or in hell. And so life may seem long to you, but it's just a puff of smoke that appears for a moment and then is gone. Now, wonder, Moses, in that same great psalm that I read, continued in Psalm 90 and verse 12 with these words. So, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. What a prayer. Teach us to number our days. Now, we tend to count our years, don't we, at our annual birthdays? But Moses says, teach us to number our days. And so both James and Moses are underscoring how short life is. Let's think about it very practically here for just a moment. Let's number our days for a moment. Suppose Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime and you live to the age of 77. Some of you are already near there. But suppose you live to the age of 77. If that's true, how many days do you have left? Well, if you're 15 years old and listening to me today, you have 22,630 days. I calculated it this week. You say, that sounds like a long time. Well, let me put it into months. If you're 15, you have 74, 744 months left to live if you live to your 77. If you're 25 years old, you have 624 months left to live. If you're 35 years old, you have 504 months to live. If you're 45 years old, you have 384 months left to live. If you're 55 years old, you have 264 months to live. If you are 65 years old, you have 144 months left. If you're 75 years old, you have 24 months left. If you're 80 years old, well, just smile because you beat the average, all right? So, teach us. You say, I'm going to live to 90. I don't do many funerals of people over 80. I've done some 500 funerals in the last 40-plus years. And very few of people over 80, very few over 90... As a general rule, what Moses said, 70 years if due to strength, 80. So teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. What kind of presentation are you giving to God this morning? We count our years. We need to consider the brevity of life and count our days. 365 days makes a year. And so how are we investing them? How are we spending our lives? Are we wasting them or are we investing them? See, before you know it, the days turn into decades, and you wake up and you said, what happened to life? I'm an old man. So don't waste your life. 
Make sure your vapor theology is sound. So that's the foolishness of ignoring God's will. Secondly, this morning, I want us to consider the wisdom of obeying God's will. So he deals with two negative aspects of God's will, and sandwiched between here is the wisdom of obeying God's will. Look now at verse 15, and I want you to notice the prayerful attitude that the believer is to have. Instead, he said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, James is not saying that every time you state your plans about the future, you need to preface it with, uh, if the Lord wills or Lord willing at the beginning of every sentence. Now, you might do that on occasion, but that's not his point. It's not so much a statement on our lips as it is an attitude that is to be in our hearts. And very often when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, who gave us a number of New Testament books, you see the spirit in him. He models what James speaks of. For instance, in Acts 18, he is speaking to the church at Ephesus, but taking leave to them and saying, I will return to you again if the Lord wills. And so he sets sail from Ephesus. Or in uh, Romans chapter 1, when he writes the church at Rome, he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. He asked in the same book, the church at Rome, to pray for him so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Or he says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And then in the 16th chapter, he closes off the letter, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So Paul was a man who had a certain sensitivity to knowing and doing the will of God. And what a contrast is found between the man who ignores God's will in verse 13 and the man who is prayerfully dependent on God's will in verse 15. And by the way, while we're on the subject of the will of God, let me say that the will of God is not difficult to discover. As long as we are willing to obey that which we know, God will show us that which we do not know. Jesus underscored that principle in John 7, 17. There were some searching people to whom he was encountering on this particular day. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. In other words, Jesus is saying when you obey what you do know, God will show you that which you do not know because obedience is the conduit to the specific tailored will of God as it relates to your life. Now, the will of God never contradicts the word of God. And so you begin by obeying the general will of God. And when you obey the general will of God, God unfolds the specific will of God. It's like walking in a cave with a headlamp. You can't see 100 yards in front of you. You can only see about 10 yards. But when you walk that 10 yards, you can see another 10 yards and another 10 yards. And that's typically how God unfolds his will, one step at a time. That's why when someone comes to faith in Christ, one of the first things I immediately ask them to do is to consider being baptized. Why? Because Christ told me that's part of the Great Commission. I'm going to ask them to be baptized. Believe and then be baptized. 
And it's for their good because when they obey what they know, they'll grow. God will unfold the next step in their life. Listen to your pastor. The more you obey what you know to be true, the easier it will be to find what you don't know. And the person who's constantly wrangling and wondering what God's plan is for his life, typically not always, unless they're just a brand new Christian, but typically they're telling on themselves They're really saying, I'm not doing the will of God that I know I should do. So when you begin doing what you know, God will show you what you don't know. He'll show you the next step. And by the way, the will of God is something that's delightful. It is satisfying. Jesus can make this statement concerning the will of God in John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It it, it delighted him. It got him up in the morning. It put him to sleep at night. It was the steepest satisfaction of his heart, and it should be yours and mine as well. Now, you can step out of that will. Jonah did that. Go to Nineveh. What does he do? He goes in the opposite way. He becomes a prodigal prophet. And so God has to discipline him because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So he sends one of his submarines on location, swallows him up. He spends three days and three nights. That becomes, among other things, a a picture of three days and three nights on that foam blubber mattress. And he comes to grips with his disobedience. The fish spits him out, and he preaches to Nineveh, and the greatest revival in the history of the world happens. Now, there's a bigger revival that's coming. The single biggest, greatest revival will happen during the tribulation period to people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. But he sees approximately 600,000 people converted. But that preaching prophet didn't do it from the heart. Because when you meet him in that fourth chapter, he's the pouting prophet. He's sucking his thumb, woe is me, under that plant. But by the way, he made it. You say, how do you know? Because he wrote the book of Jonah. God didn't use some disobedient Christian to give us the book of Jonah. But my point is, is that God wants you to do it from the heart. Paul speaks of that to the Corinthians. Some of them had a problem with giving, like some of you. He said, each one must do as he is purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not grudgingly, it's a word that means reluctantly, painfully, and not under compulsion, meaning of necessity. But you should do it because you want to do it. God loves a cheerful, it's the Greek word hilarion. We get our word hilarious from it. I want to tell you this morning that the will of God will enrich your life. It will satisfy your life. It will bring depths of joy to your innermost person when you're walking with the Lord. And so James is describing such a person here in verse 15. He prayerfully approaches God's will and plan for his life. Why? Because he understands you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live And also do this or do that. Then in verse 16, he adds, notice, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Anything short of obedience is arrogance. In essence, he's saying, God, I know what I should do, but I've got my agenda. And I'm going to do what I want to do. 
Again, he is writing to believers who are out of fellowship with the Lord. The word boast means to to speak loudly, to, to promote oneself. He's a braggart of sorts. He's not really God-centered and Christ-centered. He's self-centered. And all such boasting is evil. Remember, he's using the illustration of the businessman. And he uses the word arrogance. And the word arrogance is used in Koine Greek of a vagabond who goes around making all kinds of boasts, working people, that he's really a big shot when he's not. And and James uses this word picture because that's what this rich businessman is doing. He's boasting, he's arrogant, he thinks, he thinks he's better than the rest of the people. But the fact is, is he's wasting his life. So verse 13 shows that they were not giving the credit to the Lord for their business. He, he was boasting in himself, and all such boasting is evil. You know, I can't read this passage of Scripture without my mind going to Luke chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me to Luke chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, the first book is Matthew, Mark. The third book in the New Testament is Luke. Go to Luke chapter 12. This boasting was presumptuous. It was evil. It was arrogance. And we have an illustration of such a person here in a parable that Jesus tells. We often frame this as the parable of the rich farmer. Luke chapter 12, and let's pick it up in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here is this farmer who's extremely skilled and extremely blessed. And his problem is, is he has tremendous success. He has a bumper crop and it's so large he doesn't have a place to store all the crops and it's a concern for him. So he makes a rather bold decision. Instead of adding on to the current building, he tears them down. He builds larger barns in which to store all of his goods. He has these visions of plenty in his mind instead of visions of the Lord and visions of sharing. In many ways, he's like the typical American who's living for retirement. They want to get a good job so they can make a lot of money so that they can retire at such and such an age. I met a guy recently. He told me when he was going to retire, he had the months ticked off. Well, let me just say, there's nothing necessarily wrong with retirement. Many times your company will ask you to leave or maybe your body or your mind just can't keep up with the demands of the profession that you're in. But I think you know, if you are a Christian, that retirement is not really a biblical principle. That at best, all retirement is, is a change of job description. As Pastor Carl said, the will of God will enrich, satisfy, and bring joy to us when we are walking with the Lord. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures, 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 001. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also check out her podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. Join us next Monday as we continue to Search the Scriptures.